Hey guys, uh, another fantastic guest today. One of the co-founders of the Daily Wire, Jeremy Boring. How are you doing, sir? Oh, doing so well. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. The first time that I uh, knew of you, and I think I might have even uh, retweeted your your uh, your ad. It was the the razors one where you were going against the the Gillette guys. I am a bit miffed that you didn't use an image of the epitome of toxic masculinity. This gorgeous guy right here, but I'll forgive. I'll also forgive the fact that I wasn't included in Lady Ballers, which we'll talk about shortly. Explain yourself, sir. Yeah, well, I, I certainly owe you an apology, and really the world an apology uh, for not involving you in those two projects. You know, we we do like to involve our friends in things. It's a, I think, one of the things that makes the Daily Wire somewhat unique in the media space that we occupy is that we take a pretty expansionist view of the whole thing. You know. In Lady Ballers, we have a lot of our pals from other organizations in it, and even more were invited to participate in it, but couldn't for one reason or another. But the beauty of the internet is there is real competition, of course, uh, but competition on the internet isn't zero sum. And so I, I really do take a let a thousand flowers bloom kind of approach to the whole thing. It'd be right. fun to do something with you. <laughs> well, I was uh, delighted that uh, uh, one of your uh, folks, one of your colleagues, had uh, kindly invited me to the premiere uh, of I think it was Lady Ballers in Nashville. By the way, I've never been to Nashville. Very excited to eventually go there. Uh, the problem in my case, uh, in not being able to accept these wonderful invitations, and so apologies for not having come, uh, is that my teaching schedule doesn't allow me. I mean, if if I were to accept each of those invitations and then I would quickly be out of a job, even though I'm a tenured professor. So my apologies. How did that yes. go? It already happened, correct? Yes, we did a, a premiere in a theater here in Nashville on Wednesday night that was mostly for cast and crew and family uh, in anticipation of the public premiere this evening. And it was great. You know, I've been living with the movie for these last five months, editing and color correcting and sound mixing, et cetera. But to get to share it with the people who were in it and the people who whose work made it possible to create it was a real treat on Wednesday night. And it was a fun night. You know, all the sort of Daily Wire hosts and stars of the movie were there. And uh, it was very well received, lots of laughs. And you are one of the leading protagonists in that movie, correct? I am, although protagonist is tricky in this movie because the good guys are doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but yeah, we when we first made the film, we went out to a lot of actors who've asked to work with us in the past. You know, some of them are actors who've already been canceled and have said, you know, we'll do anything to work with The Daily Wire. But when we put this movie in front of them, uh, even they were too afraid. Even the already canceled actors were too afraid to get involved, which is understandable. This issue is sort of a religious issue for the left right now. But the the upside to those actors turning us down is that it really became a true Daily Wire production. I mean, by the end of the by the end of it, every Daily Wire host was involved in the movie in some way. And so it was it was a real treat to get to work with everyone in a completely different capacity. I think when people watch the film, they'll say, it looks like you just got together with your friends and had a good laugh. And that's basically what happened. So what, give us the, I mean, I think many people might already be familiar with the, the main premise of the movie, but give it to us for, the, for, those, of the, for those folks who don't know what it's about. Well, a down and out former high school state champion basketball coach realizes that there's a path back to glory if he gets the old crew back together and convinces them to compete as women in women's sports. It's, uh, I wish that I could say it's an outrageous premise, but it's actually just real life. We're just the only ones who are willing to point out how absurd it is at this moment. It's amazing. You know, you may, I don't know how, how familiar you are with my work, but uh, of course I've been criticizing a lot of this lunacy for, you know, decades now. And certainly within the 
cesspool of academia where all of these parasitic ideas come from. In 2017, uh, no lesser than uh, Jordan Peterson and yours truly had to appear in front of the Canadian Senate to actually confirm that there are two phenotypes of for sexually reproducing species, male and female. At least that was my part of the testimony. <laughs> how, do, where did, how did we go so wrong, Jeremy, that these are the things that we are now discussing so that these actors that otherwise would love to work with you are saying absolutely not touching the transgender issue? How did, what, what happened? Yeah, well, I think you probably know far better than I the power of an idea. I mean, I, I look around the world and I see most of the people, you know, I, I've been a lay minister for a lot of my life. And in that capacity, I've counseled a lot of people into marriages and I've counseled a lot of people in their marriages and I've counseled a handful of people who are on the way out of their marriages. And it's amazing how almost every single problem that becomes crippling to a person, not in the world, but certainly in the West and certainly in America, is a thought problem. Yeah. You know, we have we have very few actual material concerns in the West today. We essentially, after the Second World War, all but defeated war, poverty, disease, and death. You know, we we live a kind of life that no humans have ever existed before. I have a, for example, a, a very close friend who I went, I, I came from a very small town. So when I say I went to school with them, I mean every grade, the entire process with the same small handful of people. And, you know, his father died when we were young. And that was so anomalous. Then you think for any other group of people who've ever lived in history, that was the norm. It would be the norm that you everyone would have lost a brother and everyone would have lost a sister. So we live in this time of relative prosperity, of relative comfort, relative peace in, in ways that no one's ever really had to adapt to before. And it turns out humans don't do particularly well without material, uh, without material uh, adversity. I, I don't know what the solution to that is long term. Obviously, I don't think that the best solution is to go back to a time when infant mortality rates were high and people lived in constant threat of having their homes pillaged. But I do think that anytime there's a sort of hardware technological advance, the software has to change. And we've gone through this amazing period of technological advancement. The hardware has changed. The software is not yet caught, caught up. We've not developed systems for how to be people in this modern age. Yeah, well, beautiful answer. And I guess, you know, the the main mission of the Daily Wire, and you'll, you'll correct me if I'm getting it wrong, is not just to be a, you know, a podcasting I mean, hosting platform, which maybe at the start it was. It's really to enter in a meaningful and creative uh, uh, way into the space of culture war so that you can kind of redress some of the places where, you know, folks like Disney, who had been producing great content for many, many decades are now, you know, going astray. Is that now the official mission of Daily Wire? We want to create creative, meaningful products that contribute to the redressing of the cultural issues? Yes. I, I, and I would say it in some ways has been from the beginning. Hmm. You know, the, the earliest days of the Daily Wire, it was Andrew Clavin, Ben Shapiro, and myself, our business partner, Caleb Robinson, you know, most of us lived in LA. The company was started in LA. All of us had dabbled in the business, the entertainment industry, to varying degrees of success. And we all sort of came of age, politically at least, um, under the tutelage of Andrew Breitbart, who really was a cultural figure and who, you know, very famously uh, expressed that politics is downstream of culture. So we we all came to our political ideas sort of in that milieu of West Coast conservatism. I think we sort of uniquely understand the power of culture to shape what is politically acceptable. 
I often say that probably the greatest example of this maybe in history, but certainly of our time, is that it would have been impossible for Barack Obama to have been elected as a Democrat to the presidency in, uh, in 2008 had he been for gay marriage publicly. And it would have been impossible for him to be elected to a second term as a Democrat had he opposed gay marriage. In that small four-year window, one of the greatest shifts in you know, cultural morality maybe ever recorded took place. And what drove that? Well, it wasn't policy that drove it. it. The policy was a reaction to things that were happening in the culture, to things that were happening with Will and Grace being beamed into every uh, home on NBC uh, night after night after night. It was it was what was happening in music. It was you know it was the culmination of of decades of cultural work that really came to fruition in that moment. If we, you know, conservatism tends to be somewhat reactionary, obviously, and we tend to therefore react to the immediate urgent problem, but sometimes when you're only reacting to the urgent problem, you're forsaking the important problem. And culture is really the most important place where conservatives need to start paying attention you know, and should have started paying attention all along. Yeah, indeed. Do you feel that it will take as long for things to be redressed in, in the appropriate mm -hmm. manner as it took to to fall into the abyss of infinite Lucy. So for example, in the parasitic mind, when I'm talking about all these idea pathogens, depending on which parasitic idea you're talking about, you can timestamp it, you know, 30, 40 years ago, but some of them can go up to 80, 90 years ago. Cultural relativism was a movement that started with Franz Boas, a cultural anthropologist, you know, many, many years ago. So do we need to wait 80 years mm -hmm. for Disney to no longer be woke? Or is there a mechanism mm -hmm. by which we can accelerate the antidote to these cultural issues? Well, I think that we have things going for us that they did not have going for them. Uh, one of them is that reality is on our side. And so, <laughs> uh, and, and the other is that most people don't believe, actually in their heart of hearts, all of the things that they purport to believe because the left has achieved a kind of cultural hegemony and political hegemony all across the West to where they can actually enforce conformity to their views. So many, many people, for example, will toe the party line on transgenderism. Very, very few people, even very, very few Democrats, really want to see their daughter compete against a man in women's sports. So I think if we have the boldness to speak out and, and to speak those truths in the places where those truths need to be spoken, which isn't just railing on Twitter, right? It's getting out and using our hands and creating art, creating entertainment, creating policy, being more energetic in our policy approach than conservatives have been for most of my lifetime. Uh, still still having to weigh that, of course, against the Constitution and, and the unique American system. But I think that if we become energetic and somewhat entrepreneurial in our approach, the, the good news is that we're, we're pushing in the direction of gravity, and they were always pushing against gravity. So maybe that's just a different way of saying uh, if God is on our side, maybe it's not too late. You know, earlier you mentioned about uh, hardware versus software. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm suffering from a really bad cold, so apologies for any oh, cost. Uh, so in, in, in several of my earlier books, my evolutionary psychology books, I talk about cultural products as fossils of the human mind. And so let me explain what I mean by that. And then you can see how I think it, it might resonate with some of the stuff that you guys are doing and, and about the software issue. So 
the, the, the brain is organic and therefore no, the mind, it doesn't fossilize, right? So if, if I'm a paleontologist and I want to study the evolutionary history of a species, well, I can look at fossil remains. I could look at skeletal remains that allow me to say things that are very specific about a species that has now no longer existed 65 plus million years ago. What I argue is that while human minds don't fossilize, the cultural products that they leave behind mm. do fossilize. Meaning I can study an ancient Greek poem that was written 2,500 years ago where you know it was they didn't know what ipads were and didn't know what internet was and didn't know what phones you know what planes were they may were. not have known what the color blue was exactly fair enough and 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 yet the software that's operating their brain that's that's the point i was trying to make is exactly the same software as ours meaning that there is an invariance across time and place about human nature such that the movies that we watch, the TV shows that we consume, the song lyrics that titillate us, the art, the, the religious narratives are all fossils of the human mind because they speak to an invariant human nature. And yet wokeism, and hence why I use the parasitic framework, is able to completely turn that upside down because the narratives that they propose are by definition a negation of reality and yet those ideas go viral. Yeah. Well, I also think those ideas can only really uh, take root when things are otherwise fairly good. Right. I think that, you know, I, I, this is not my preferred solution to our current problems, but should we find ourselves pulled into an actual world war for the first time in 70 some years, I suspect that, you know, whether or not we should have one bathroom or two will quickly resolve itself. Those aren't the kind of problems that can stand up to actual right. material uh, adversity. I, I like what you're saying, though, about being able to see sort of cultural fossils that, that reveal something about the human mind in various moments. And it, it speaks to something that's always sort of informed my worldview in politics, and that's that I'm not a conservative in the uh, purely reactionary European right, way, right wing sort of tradition. You know, I'm a conservative in the uniquely American liberal tradition, which right. is which is unique and is distinct. And I, I think that because it's somewhat nuanced and we live in a very polarized moment, it's hard to ever discuss things that require nuance. You know, part of what makes America unique, though, is that America as a revolutionary country and therefore a decidedly sort of liberal, you know, that is a liberal action to try to build something new, to try to create something that hasn't existed before, to throw off the past and build something new. But unique, unique to the founders of this country was the idea that the entire past was not bad per se. They didn't want a revolution like the French Revolution where we're going to remake man. Right. They wanted a revolution that acknowledged all, those, all of those fossils that tell us something about humanity. And that informs my politics to this day. I don't, I don't want to throw out all of the institutions. I, I don't want to throw out the past. I want to, uh, the conservative part of me wants to look backward for the things that work and are true and time-tested, the wisdom of the wisdom that's been passed down to us across the history of our species. I also, the, the, the American liberal in me wants to identify the places where those structures fail, the places where those structures are inadequate, the, the places where those structures sometimes don't take into account the suffering of, you know, of minority groups or of the individual and build on the firm foundation of the wisdom of the past, but build something new. And, and for that reason, I've always sort of had an equally negative reaction to, uh, to radical revolutionaries 
and to you know uh, uh, maybe you just call them um, narrow-minded Bible-thumping type you know institutional uh, people. So I'm I'm like neither uh, I'm I'm neither comfortable in the Protestant uh, would neither have been comfortable in Luther's church nor would I have been comfortable in in the Pope's church. So I've always kind of had to walk this middle this middle ground, but I think that middle ground is a uniquely American ground. Right. Uh, to your point about you know not wanting to erase everything that came beforehand, and and f- forgive again another self plug here, but it's relevant to the story. In my latest book on happiness, at one point I talk about the correlation between political orientation and happiness, mm-hmm. and I cite the quite an extensive research that seems to be rather unequivocal in, in, in demonstrating that on average, conservatives score happier than you know liberals slash progressives. And I offer, I mean, a speculative, I haven't tested this, it's a speculative explanation for it, but I, I think it's a good one and I'd love to, to take, uh, you know, to hear your opinion on it. So I think that the reason why conservatives are happier is that it's precisely because when they wake up in the morning, there is a sense of existential, you know, comfort in the fact that there are things worthy of conserving, right? Of course, no society is perfect, but I can wake up and say, hey, I, I live in a place where there's freedom of speech. And, and, and in the case of the United States, there's this great idea called the First Amendment. And there's this. so, yes, we can tweak this and that. And sure, we didn't have a perfect past. But overall, I think uh, this is existentially, this is a good place. The progressive, on the other hand, wakes up with complete existential angst from time T0, which is everything sucks currently and just around the corner lies unicornia. And if only we can now erase everything, we can live a better world. What do you think of this explanation? Yeah, it, I share that exact sentiment. I, I, I express it somewhat differently, which is what I would say is that in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we, we acknowledge this kind of concept of original sin. And I know that the Jewish position on the idea of original sin is distinct from uh, the Christian view of original sin. But nevertheless, our books start with the same chapters. And in those chapters, sin enters the world. And it enters the world by way of uh, the temptation to make ourselves like God. You know, the the Nakash says to man in the garden, sure, God said, if you eat from the fruit, uh, you'll die. But I say, if you eat from the fruit, you'll be like God. And that that leads us to have this sort of fundamental understanding of the world uh, that says the root problem of the world is a problem that is in us. It's a desire that is in us. We can never escape it. You, know, you can't you can't defeat sin. You can mitigate against perhaps expression of sin. You can sacrifice some you know to to make amends with God for sin. Or in the in the Christian view, you can uh, accept the sacrifice of Christ. As a, as a way of having reconciliation with God on behalf of sin. But the left, in all of its sundry isms, are all united in the, in the belief that original sin is a thing that happened to man, not a thing that happened within man. Right. And so if you're Marxist, then it's class, or if you're uh, even sort of radical libertarian, uh, then maybe it's coercion or wh- whatever it is. It's an outside force that acted against man. And if you believe that, then ultimately you you wake up every day believing that you're a victim, believing that the thing that is between you and unicorn, unicornia, unicornia, yeah, between you and utopia, between you and happiness, 
are these external forces that you just need to rail against and defeat. And if you're conservative and, you, and you've held on to the underlying religious traditions on which the West has been built, you ultimately have a kind of, um, I suppose, acceptance of the fact that things will always be imperfect, that they'll never be for you because the problem is in you and the problem is in your neighbor. Everyone's dealing with these, the same thing inside, which is sin and, and imperfection and the fact that we're not God. And, and for that reason, a strange side effect of it is that you know that, that happiness, if it exists at all, has to happen right here in the imperfect world. It isn't waiting for us around the corner in the, in the world that we know full well can never be, because if there was such a perfect world, we couldn't be in it. Right. Now, beautiful, beautifully said. So another thing that I talk about in, in uh, the happiness book is what are, how should I go about choosing the profession that, you know, is, you know, optimizes my ability to flourish. Yes. And so I argue that there are, when it comes to you choosing the right profession, there are two things that you should try to uh, achieve. And you're going to see how they relate to certainly much of the endeavors that you partake in. I argue that number one, all other things equal, anything that allows me to instantiate my creative impulse is going to lead to a more direct line towards purpose and meaning, just because the, the act of creation, of creativity, just offers me purpose and meaning. And so now I can define creative pursuits in radically different domains, right? I could be a chef, I could be an architect, I could be a podcaster, I could be a stand-up comic, I could be an author and professor. These are very, very different pursuits, but what they share in common is that something didn't exist until I came along and with, with my unique take, I created something, the dish, the, the bridge, the stand-up comedy routine, the, the book. And so it seems to me that whenever, whatever I know of the Daily Wire, I mean, you're by definition, you're immersed in the act of creation. I'm creating new content. I'm creating new documentaries. I know I'd love to hear about your Hungarian project right now, which I first heard of when I was with uh, one of you... I, his name escapes me. Tall gentleman. Uh, is that, is that, that's not ringing a bell so far. He he. Uh, we, I'm, I went. I'm, to, I'm decidedly not very tall, so they're all tall to me. Uh, to me too. I, I I suffer from the same uh, affliction. Uh, but I was with the Jordan Peterson and your gentleman and a couple of other guys over Jonathan dinner. A. There you go. Thank you. Uh, and so I'd love to hear about that in a second. But is that what gets you up in the morning and kind of rubs your hands is what am I creating today? What am I participating in to 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 put a little imprimatur of my creative process? Would that be right in saying? Absolutely. You know, when I first started succeeding in business after after years and years of not really succeeding in the arts, a lot of my artistic friends said, you know, it's got to be hard, right? You, you're always a really creative guy, and now you're in business. And, and I would correct them and say, you know, I, I had that same bias that, you, that you're displaying until I got into business and realized that it is a creative act. I mean, hundreds of jobs now exist that only exist because we created them. Uh, all of this content that we're putting out in the world is an, exp you know, yes, now I'm being creative and directing a movie, but my ability to, to be creative in that sense and direct that movie exists within a framework of being paid for and distributed by this other thing that I created that really comes from the same side of the brain and satisfies the same impulse. And I, I would only add one thing, and I, I haven't read your book, so it may very well be that it's there, but a major part of what brings a person happiness and fulfillment, I do think is creative expression, but I, I also think that it's struggle. Right. You know, 
it is really subscribe to the view that that happiness is pouring out your best effort in pursuit of the thing that you believe we 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 struggle here the daily wire is hard our, our future is not guaranteed you know we're always on the razor's edge where we take enormous risks as soon as we get ahead just a little bit we go do the biggest thing we've ever tried to do and some people think we're being reckless and that could i guess bear out but i actually just think that if you're not growing you're dying and and i don't think that i would be you know i see like these books on bookstore shelves you know the four hour work week or retire at 40 or and i think nothing sounds more depressing to me yeah than thinking that my effort should be over at 40 or thinking that my effort should be constrained to four days a week I don't have any hobbies. My hobby is the thing that brings me joy is pouring myself out, pouring out my best effort for the things that are the hardest. Oh, beautifully said. So I, I do discuss this in the book in the context. In a later chapter, I talk about uh, you know, the anti-fragility of failure and the importance of persistence and stick to itness. And of course, you you may know him, Nassim Talib, who's a fellow Lebanese author you know, coined the term anti-fragility, right? So that, yes. you know, you, you can't have systems of optimal flourishing if they are so brittle that as soon as you touch them, they they fall apart. And so, and I give examples in the book of, you know, the, the greatest people in their respective, of all time in their respective, Michael Jordan was cut in his sophomore high school team. Lionel Messi uh, was told that he's too frail to be a professional soccer player. Zinedine Zidane, who until Lionel Messi came along, was arguably the, the best player of his generation uh, that you know won the World Cup, uh, was refused selection by the Algerian coach. He could have played for either Algeria or France. And the Algerian coach looked at him and said, he's he's too slow. He'll ne- he, we, we're not interested in him. Steven Spielberg, as you probably know, was rejected not once, not twice, but three times from the USC uh, film school and on and on, J.K. Rowling and so on. And so anti-fragility is is actually needed not only for humans. Seneca talks about, and I don't have the exact quote, but he basically, Seneca, this is 2000 years ago, the Stoic philosopher says that the strongest trees that have the deepest roots are those that have been exposed to a lot of wind stressors precisely because that's what allows them to then be strong. So I couldn't agree with your general point about, you know, feeling those stressors uh, as a way of then achieving great things. I've said this a few times of late, but it, it couldn't be more important when I, you know, am criticized online as we all are who, who engage in any of these sorts of conversations that we all engage in. One of the number one attacks that people bring up over and over and over again is, you know, you're nothing but a failed screenwriter. And they'll bring it up about Ben as well. Ben's nothing but a wannabe failed screenwriter. And I think only someone who not only hasn't had success in their life, but who cannot have success in their life, believes that I am ashamed of my failures or that you can humiliate me by bringing up my failures. I, my failures have made me who I am to whatever extent we have success now. And in the case of Ben Shapiro, um, to, to say Ben is nothing but a failed screenwriter is to miss the fact that uh, Ben has the nicest watches of anybody uh, that I've ever met. He's done incredibly well for himself, but he's done incredibly well for himself because of the things that he learned in failure. And I think that maybe to bring it all the way back to the earliest part of our conversation, one of the reasons that conservatives are happy is because our ideas have been stress tested. And one of the reasons that the left is totalitarian it's because they're terrified that their 
that their ideas are fragile. The only way that they can continue to believe what they believe is if they never have to encounter you opposing their ideas. And because of left-wing hegemony in the culture, every show I've ever watched was written by a left-wing writer. Every song I've ever loved and listened to is written by a left-wing writer. Every, you know, half of, I lived in California for 20 years. There weren't even Republicans on the ballot. It would be one Democrat running against another Democrat because of the unique way that they handle politics in their, ballot politics in their state. So of course, I, I understand the left's arguments. I've been completely immersed in the, the arguments of the left my entire life. And so I'm very, com I'm very comfortable with my ideas. Are Were you ever, so in the, in the way famously Dave Rubin said uh, why I left the left, yeah. given that you grew up or, or, or flourished in that ecosystem originally, were you a lefty person who then saw the light or you, or you didn't have that transformation? I didn't have that transformation. I, I would say that probably in my teenage years, I would have more identified as being on the left only attitudinally. You know, at that point in my life, I was in a very small town in West Texas, the flattest place on earth. It's called the Llano Estacado. The, the cities have names like Plainview and Level Land. I mean, it's, it is flat. And it's the classic kind of Buddy Holly story for me where you know, the small town couldn't contain me and I felt hard done by by the constraints of that environment. I, I've come to realize that a lot of that was hubris and delusion. And I, I see so much beauty now in the life that I got to grow up in, the, the world I grew up in. But I, I didn't see that as a teenager. I wanted to rebel against it. But very quickly in my early 20s, 9-11 happened. I moved to LA. And when I got to LA and I saw that the people who had, you know, who had the same sort of criticisms of the status quo that I had, and I thought therefore I would be able to relate to them, they all wanted to essentially flush the baby out with the bathwater. And I, and I could just never embrace that idea. And so I, I think that when my politics really started forming and I voted in my first presidential election, by, by that time I already identified myself as being part of the, that unique American conservative tradition. And you were, I, I only found this out yesterday while listening to your excellent chat with uh, Megan Kelly. Uh, I think it was maybe yesterday that you held it, correct? Uh, I can't remember the name. Is it Friends of Abe? Did I, am I getting this right? Is yeah, that... Friends of Abe. Can you tell us about that? Because I, I only found out about this in yesterday's show, and I was amazed that I'd never heard of it. So please tell us about it. Well, the real trick of Friends of Abe is that it is truly a secret organization, and so it's hard <laughs> to ever find anything out about it. Right. But we existed for you know, the better part of a decade in Southern California, and it really was just a support group for conservatives working in the industry. The thing that we, the thing that we guarded the most was people's privacy, because in that environment, so many people were concerned that if their politics were discovered, they would never work again. I mean, grown men would routinely weep at their first meeting to realize that they were in a room full of other people who saw the world the way they did. People had a guy meet his agent. They both showed up at the same meeting and they saw each other and were afraid they were both going to lose their job and then realized, oh no, by virtue of the fact that we're both here is probably okay. Had a grown man break down weeping, saying that if his wife found out his politics, he would no longer be married. So that town is so political and so um, intolerant of any sort of deviation in thought that people truly just live out lies. And that was an incredibly formative experience for me to get to be a part of the organization and later to run it for five years, just to see to see what that kind of tyrannical thought policing 
not only does to people's careers, many of these people had figured out how to navigate it with their careers, but what it did to their soul, what it did to them as people. You know, for a grown man to weep because he realizes he's not the only person in a city who thinks the way that, he's, that he thinks, something really sinister has gone on there. But, you know, it, and I don't mean to, to come down hard on, the, on those folks. I understand the, the pragmatic reality of I need to put food on the table and therefore maybe I need to hide my political positions. But I'm going to speak just as an individual who lives life in a very different way. So for me, one of the things that I talk about that is most fundamental to my personhood is to a fault as a, a, an adherence to authenticity, right? And so mm -hmm. I'm often, when, when I'm asked by people, you know, why do you do it? You, you already lead a very stressful life as a, you know, a professor, you, you've got all these, and yet you, you do all these other things. I say, well, you know, because when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the night, the only way that I can, you know, avoid insomnia is if I feel as though I was perfectly, fully authentic in every microsecond of my day, if I ever modulated what I think, what I do, what I say, I would feel as though I'm a charlatan, I'm a fraud, and I couldn't live with myself. I'm, I'm, I'm my biggest critic. And so let me give a concrete example of how I live by, by that creed. So as you probably know, Jeremy, we now have these diversity inclusion equity statements for, for everything. Well, in academia, you now have to fill out a diversity inclusion equity statement when you apply for research grants, when you apply for some fancy professorship. And I decided that I would rather not have any research grants, which of course affects my career and that I can't then do certain you know, studies that I wish to do, which are important for the advancement of my research, because then I would feel inauthentic from this side of my mouth to write the parasitic mind and rail against diversity, inclusion, equity, but from this side of my mouth while nobody's looking to participate in the charade. So again, I'm not trying to be unfair to those folks. I understand that different people have different ways by which they modulate risk rewards how can they live with themselves saying i'm going to play along and be a charade and only friends of abe is going to be my i would feel fraudulent if i did that yeah well one thing that i think happened with friends of abe is that a lot of people did become much more bold in their in their willingness to step out once they realized they weren't alone that's a big part of how authoritarian uh, regimes, which is essentially what Hollywood is, a, a big way that they maintain control is to isolate you and make you feel like you're the only person who sees the world. And of course, if you're absolutely the only person like you, it'd be much harder to have any boldness at all. You know, some of us are somewhat contrarian by nature. I've never hidden who I am to my, I'm sure to my detriment in many, uh, in many situations, economic and relational. But I wouldn't even say that it's some great act of valor on my part that I wouldn't. I'm just, I am just not wired yeah. to be able to, to be other than I am. Um, and, and I know that other people are wired somewhat differently. You know, I, I, I buck and I've always bucked. But do you and think I, there's a way, forgive me for interrupting, is like there a too. way to teach them? So if, because ultimately what you want to do is be an agent of change, right? So, mm -hmm. so I don't need to convince Jeremy that he needs to lead an authentic life, but there are all sorts of other otherwise moral, decent people who yeah. don't have your personality trait. Is there a way for me to instill that courage in them through whichever persuasion technique is reasonable? Well, for sure. And I think one of the great ways that you can do it is, is by living boldly and showing people that that is a viable path. You know, 
people sometimes get onto us at the Daily Wire for preaching to the choir. And I think that in some ways they're missing the point. The, the choir is exactly who you want to preach to. To to reach to reach um, a person whom I will never meet. Let's call them a member of the audience. Right. Let's say that there's a member of the audience who is diametrically opposed to me in the way that they view the world. It's not impossible that they will listen to me talk into a microphone or watch some movie that I made or overhear some podcast. It's not impossible that they'll engage with that content and that content will change their mind. Certainly that happens. If you have a show as big as Ben's, I'm sure you can count, many people can count themselves in that category. But as a percentage, it's an incredibly small number. And some people are better at that than others. I know many, many people who were led back to the church by either Ben or uh, Dennis Prager. The way they talk about certain issues causes both Jews to, to reconnect with their Judaism, but also connect, causes Christians to reconnect with their Christianity. Amazingly, listening to a devout religious Jewish person can cause a Christian to engage with their Christianity. Of course it can. But again, those are somewhat unique figures, and it's still a somewhat small percentage of their audience. What I think happens far, far, far more often is that people's ideas change through relationship. People's ideas change not by listening to Ben, but by talking to their friend who yeah. listens to Ben and had his ideas sharpened by Ben and had his arguments sharpened by Ben. And then in his own day-to-day -day personal life, he has actual personal influence over people. So I, I think that, yes, we preach to the choir. We boldly preach to the choir. My hope is that we empower the choir and the choir goes out and lives those authentic lives. The people who we already have some alignment can live more authentically, can, can live more boldly, can argue more articulately, and they'll reach people where people are actually available to be reached, which isn't in esoteric and abstract political argument. It's in human engagement and the, the, the dirty process of building and maintaining friendships and marriages and relationships. And I think that's where, I think all, almost all the good that we do, in other words, is, is uh, a secondary function of our day-to-day -day work. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Tell us about the, since we mentioned it very briefly earlier, we mentioned Hungary. By the way, before I, I ask you to tell us about that that project, I've now been to Hungary twice. The first time was in 2022 uh, mm -hmm. when I was invited to, I don't know if you know MCC, it's one of their think tank. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the, uh, you know, the what the acronym stands for. Uh, so I, I gave some talks there. They had just uh, released a, translated version of the parasitic mind into Hungarian. The second time I went was at uh, the Budapest Dem the Demography uh, Summit, where all kinds of folks were invited to talk about the importance, what you would think you don't have to talk about, which is we're sexually reproducing species. We're built to create children, but apparently we need a, a summit with world leaders and professors to tell us that, yeah, yeah, have sex. It's good to have children. <laughs> it leads to happiness. But anyways, I right. fell in love with, uh, with Hungary, and uh, so what, what's your link to Hungary? And then tell us about that, that, that uh, series. Absolutely. Well, I'd never been to Hungary until this year. And we were scouting most of, well, not most of, we were scouting many countries in Europe to be a potential home for our first scripted fictional series, The Pin Dragon Cycle, which is an adaptation of the novels by Stephen Lawhead, which had a, a real impact on me as a young man. And, you know, the novels predominantly take place in Wales, and I wanted to shoot in Wales. Uh, geography is really important to art, I think, and 
the author Stephen Lawhead had had become an expatriate. He had expatriated to the United Kingdom, in part during the writing of these, and has remained there. And I wanted that connection to the actual place. But there are budgetary and logistical realities in in making this kind of content. It quickly became evident that Wales wasn't going to be the right home for this project at the in the way that we have to go about making it. So I went on a trip that took me to places where a lot of film happens, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Hungary, Italy, and a handful of others. And even then, as I came to realize that Hungary was going to be the best place for this show, for a variety of reasons, landscapes being one, uh, the film infrastructure there being another, the backlots that they've built uh, for other shows sort of later than ours, medieval, but nevertheless, the, our show's pre-medieval, but a lot of those backlot locations would really be helpful to us. Even then, I was not looking forward to spending half of my year in Hungary. And then when we moved there on July 10th or 11th of this year, uh, I say moved, when we, when we set up shop there, we didn't relocate permanently or anything. When we arrived there to make the show, I was just immediately struck by how beautiful the city is. Immediately struck by how livable the city is. Immediately struck by the fact that here in this small Eastern European country, there there is a connect a, a, a deep connection to the people and the history that have existed in that spot for yes. centuries. And you forget how much you miss a sense of national identity. And I think that in some ways Hungary is a little bit late to the national identity game, but they're but they're far ahead of where we in in Western Europe or America are right now. And it's it's been incredibly refreshing to experience it. I think I have concerns about the system by which they've gone about reconnecting to some of their past. I think that uh, there there are certainly imperfections in the way that they're going about it, but there are obviously major imperfections in the way that the path that we've taken too. And to the extent that theirs has allowed them to have this resurgence of national pride and identity, I can only hope that we find our way down a similar, Amen. at least to a similar end, if not down a similar path. Yeah, I'll just add a few few points uh, regarding uh, uh, well, certainly Budapest, but Hungary more generally. Because on, on my last trip, we we ended up going to apparently the largest lake in Europe is located in Hungary, and we ended I ended up swimming there, and it was re- really beautiful. This this was this past September. What I love about Hungary is that it seems as though their sense of aesthetics is found everywhere. Right, the doorknobs look beautiful. The 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 manholes on the street have more workmanship on them than a piece of art in the you know New York Museum of Fine Arts you know whatever and so there is a sense of aesthetic reverence for aesthetics which perhaps is not surprising why uh, R- Roger Scruton who is a famous you know uh, 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 conservative philosopher who who's now passed away uh, regrettably is very much connected to Hungary. So that love of history, that sense of pride, that love of aesthetics, that reverence for intellectualism. So the 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 everywhere you turned, the monuments were not of Celine Dion and Taylor Swift. It was of this Nobel laureate, this philosopher, this artist, and the way they reacted to me. Right? Uh, you know, I was treated as though I were a rock star. I'm I'm just a professor, and but yet. That's who their rock stars are. 
And so imagine if we can return to that in the West where, you know, you revere thought and art and philosophy, boy, would be in a, a better place. You know, they're they're literally putting new facades on brutalist architecture built by the Soviets. They're <laughs> they're going out of the way to take their already beautiful city and make it more beautiful. Yeah, that's there, amazing. There's a lot to be there's a lot to be learned. So a uh, few personal questions. I, I, I'm very mindful of the time. I know you have a hard stop at two o'clock. So one of the things I talk about uh, towards the end of the happiness book is regret. And so mm-hmm. let me set it up for you. Uh, this is actually one of my former professors when I was a doctoral student. His name is Thomas Gilovich. He pioneered the psychology of regret by distinguishing between two forms of regret that we might feel in life. Regret due to action versus regret due to inaction. Regret due to action, you know, I cheated on my wife and I regret that I was such an asshole and, you know, that led to the dissolution of my marriage. Regret due to inaction, you know, I always wanted to be a screenwriter, but I became a pediatrician because my dad is a pediatrician and his dad is a pediatrician and it would have been uh, disastrous if I didn't follow in their medical footsteps. But now I'm 60 years old and I realize I hate you know, being a pediatrician and I didn't live an authentic life. So if I now ask you, you're still a relatively young man, so you're not at the proverbial porch when you're 85. But if I were to ask you today, looking back at your life, do you have any looming regrets? And do you care to share any with us? You know, I don't live a life of regret. And I can say that I I think one interesting thing about, and again, this probably is what they might call a first world problem. But I have more regrets for things that I didn't do, and they're all they're all good decisions that I made, and I regret the good decisions. And what I mean by that is, it's just a unique thing that you look back at the girl you didn't have sex with and think, oh man, I should have had sex with that girl. You actually made a good decision, but because of the way that the human mind and the human heart work, you're able to look back at the good decision, the place where God ba- basically carried you through, and say that you wish that you had made the bad decision. But what I know intellectually, I don't always know it, you know, when I'm entertaining some similar moment. What I know intellectually is that had you made that decision, your life would not have led you to the place that you are today. Right. The, the, the reason that we're able to entertain regret of the things that we didn't do is by and large because we can do it from a sort of fanciful place where you've still arrived at the outcome that you, that you currently have. I love my life. I love my business. I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love my family. I have those things because of the decisions that I've made along the way for good and for ill. And, uh, and only in a sort of, you know, only the same part of me that wishes that I could fly like Superman, wishes that any part of my life had gone any differently. Because the truth is that I, I live a life that I'm very grateful for. Well, you'll never need the help of Jordan Peterson, apparently. You don't need to see a therapist because you, you know, one of the things that's very difficult for most people is 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 that haunting, looming regret of, by the way, you're, you're, when you said, I regret more inactions, that's exactly what the research finds, which is when you ask people what's their most haunting, looming regrets, they're almost always over the long term, those of inaction rather than of action. So you're exactly within what we would expect from the academic literature. I think that you and I share in common, though, this, I don't often use the word authenticity to, to describe my approach to life. Uh, in, in some ways, I, I view all of my strengths and weaknesses as always being the same things. And so, yes. you know, I think that that's the nature of being a person. But 
I, I for, for better and for worse, am a contrarian, and for better and for worse, will not do the things that I think I'm supposed to do, even if I think that they would be better received. And for that reason, I don't have a lot of the kinds of regrets that you're describing, because I have just done the things that I wanted to do in life, by and large, for the most part, or at least the things that I thought were right to do. I don't say that as some great moral statement. I have all, I have all the same failings of everyone else, uh, of course, and you know, no one's righteous, least of all, least of all me. But I, I have tried to live a life in which I don't allow my decisions to be made for me by circumstance. And, and I will say that one of the things that I think has made the Daily Wire very unique is that there is deep disagreement on the most important issues between the three founders, Ben, Caleb, and myself. You know, Ben is as, as uh, observant uh, in his Judaism as one can be. Uh, Caleb has this very unique Christian background uh, that, that I won't speak for him here uh, about, but is, but is not something that one adheres to lightly. And I have a very pronounced Protestantism and, and have been a lay minister and Bible teacher during my life. And so right at the heart of our, of our friendships and partnerships are differences that are somewhat irreconcilable. And we've made room for one another in yeah. that, and we support one another in that. We love, we, we love one another in a very masculine way uh, through, those, through those distinctions. We've created a platform that sort of acknowledges uh, differences of, of opinion and approach. And I think that that's, that's important to what we are. But the one other thing that's very important to what we are is that we don't pander to our audience. Right. In this incredibly populist moment where you're only supposed to say to people exactly what they want to hear, we often challenge our audience. That is distinct from betraying our audience. It's so important to us not to betray our audience. Part of our job is to represent them truthfully. But part of our job also is to challenge them in the places where perhaps they're uh, their instinct may be wrong. And that happens a lot in politics. You know, we, we get angry, we get passionate, and sometimes we're tempted to move toward things that aren't true. And I think somewhat uniquely, the Daily Wire will say to our audience, no, no, we don't. I always think it's funny when people call us grifters. They never call us a grifters. They never call us grifters when we agree with them. They only call us grifters when we don't agree. But of course, if we were grifters, there would never be a time that we didn't agree with them. Right. But we've, we've always taken, you know, all the way back to 2016, the, the earliest days of our company when Ben and I, uh, came out saying that we wouldn't support Trump's uh, first first election to the presidency. We thought it was the end of our company, and yet we were able to prosper and grow through there, even with people who deeply disagreed with us because of, to use your word, a kind of authenticity. I think people believed that they could trust what we said because we weren't willing to just say what they wanted to hear. But a major part of that, uh, it, it ended up being a good economic decision. We didn't know that at the time. We thought it was certainly a bad economic decision, but neither one of us was willing to live lives if we couldn't live them on our terms. Neither one of us was willing, Ben or I, to say things that we didn't believe. And, you know, that means that I make a lot of mistakes that I have to own, but at least I feel that I can own my mistakes. I can own my successes and I can own my mistakes because I made them all on my own terms. And that leads to uh, maybe no better a life than anyone else, but I do suspect a, a life of fewer regrets than other people might. That's beautiful. When you were mentioning, uh, you know, the intersection between Ben, yourself, and is it Caleb? Caleb, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of a story that happened to me this uh, summer. I had I was in uh, Southern California, you know, promoting my latest book, and uh, the Babylon Bee had invited me to their offices in Ontario. 
And I I didn't know until I visited that they're actually quite you know Christian in their uh, you know in their in their outlook. And the gentleman who's absolutely lovely who picked me up in in Newport Beach, so it's about an hour and a half drive, and then drove That's me back. Say again. That's quite a haul. Yeah, exactly. And as we got back to where my family and I were staying in Newport Beach, he looked to me and looked at me and said, "Do you mind if I just do a, a prayer for you?" Which kind of took me a bit aback, and I said, "Sure." So he kind of closes his eyes. He he puts his hand on my uh, my lap and does this beautiful prayer. You know, all God, you know, God give God sad. And even though, you know, I didn't necessarily, you know, I, w- I wouldn't be someone who who would do that. I was very, very touched by the gesture. And so to your point, even though you might think that there's no place where we might intersect, I thought that that was a truly beautiful spiritual moment that I felt very enriched by. So I I, I hear your point. Yeah, that, that's what a great story. Thank you. Okay, last question. Uh, are there any projects, even though today... Mm. We want to promote the project that's about to be released today, Lady Ballers. Are there any things cooking in the pipeline that you might want to use this opportunity? We only have a couple of minutes. Uh, Please take it away. Well, of course, Lady Ballers tonight. uh, This is Friday, December 1st, and we're dropping our first feature comedy, this this hilarious look at at men participating in women's sports. Um, And... We're, we're thrilled about it. It's truly a uniquely Daily Wire project. It stars all of the Daily Wire's hosts. It was written by employees of the Daily Wire. You know, it's, it's, it's our most Daily Wire thing we've ever done. It's basically just a 90-minute Jeremy's Razors commercial. But we are also premiering tonight the uh, first teaser trailer, the, the first sneak peek at our first animated series called Bircham with Adam Carolla. And that'll be coming in Q1 of next year. I think people are really going to appreciate it. It's, it's Adam's unique comedic sensibility and his, again, you just talk about somebody who isn't willing to say things that he doesn't think are true. I have a lot of disagreements with Adam, but I have such respect for the fact that he he owns his positions, he's bold about them, uh, and he's hilarious. You know, we're still in Hungary. I, I leave in two hours. I get on a plane to head back to Hungary for the remainder of the year to finish our Pendragon Cycle series. That's the biggest thing we've ever taken on. It's a, been an unbelievable undertaking and and certainly the hardest thing that I've ever endeavored to do. And looking to the new year, you know, we, we like not to talk about things until we talk about them over here at the Daily Wire. But what I can say is uh, there, there are several things coming in 2024 that we're really excited about. And, and uh, you, you can rest assured that all of them have that sort of unique admixture of, of um, respect for our audience and orneriness uh, that, that I think sort of defines our company. I can't wait to, to see that stuff. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Thank you so much. You're even more delightful than I thought you would be. So thank you for exceeding my, my expectations. Cheers. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you.